just welcome everyone to another one of our Ignatian Conversations, our Discernment in Action series. I'm very excited to have Mr. Tom Marsh with us today as we're talking about the topic of uh, discernment in scholarship and the ways, the many ways, especially at a school, that there can be an intersection between kind of the academic work that we do and the process of discernment that we're engaged in, the way it can manifest in the classroom, in our personal lives, and we'll just see what other elements might come up. So first, I'll just uh, have our uh, guest here today say a little bit about himself, who he is, uh, context at Loyal High School. Uh, thank you for the invitation, Bob. I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Thomas Marsh. I teach AP British Literature at Loyola, and I am the director of the Ignatian Scholars Program, which is a hybrid program that has both a capstone writing component um, and a writing center component. So students function both as capstone writers on personal research topics of their choice. They lead faculty advisor teams on those topics. Those same students serve as tutors in a writing center as part of a service component in the program as well. It's a great opportunity for, for our students at, uh, at Loyola to, to kind of get involved in, in both a kind of a practice of, a, of really going deep uh, in, in a topic and then also being of service to others. So much touching on is, uh, as we've talked about, uh, parts of the mission that we're engaged in. So as we kind of enter into the conversation, it's often helpful too just to, to give a frame for what, what we mean when we're talking about that, that concept because it, it can mean different things to different people. So if you wouldn't mind just saying a little bit about kind of how you view the concept of discernment, what that means to you, um, either in, in person or in your role at, at oil. Sure. Well, personally, I think I've always been drawn to states of meditative calm, states of potential acquisition of wisdom, states of perceived enlightenment. So I guess I associate discernment with the attempt to enter into those states um, consciously through maybe like meditative practice, some sort of distancing practice from the, the daily rigors of life, um, processes of alteration through like breath, through prayer, through other mechanisms that would separate us from um, kind of like the daily existential concerns that surround us um, to get us into space where we can contemplate larger issues. And I always think of discernment as somehow atemporal, that discernment takes us out of the moment in a positive way and allows us to reflect on it. I would say my first encounter with the Jesuit definitions of discernment came through the examine when I became a teacher at Loyola. And the examine is often structured at Loyola as a reflection on a previous day. So to consider what happened the day before, um, various encounters with God, various encounters with manifestations of presences that indicate maybe spiritual potential, moments of spiritual potential, or moments of potential beyond just ordinary interaction. It encourages us to see um, the depth and layering of daily life. Mm -hmm. And I, I just thought that was incredibly beneficial as an exercise to get us out of the moment. I think I encourage guys to, to try to do that in the moment as well. You know, we're in such a busy culture, we're in such a noisy society. Mm -hmm the ability to separate from that noise, even as it's happening, and try to discern the correct path or to discern the best possible choice, I think is a real virtue uh, that we can train our students in. 
those are habits of scholarship, habits of discernment, or just habits of prayerful life or meditative practice, however you frame it. Mm -hmm. I'm also a Tai Chi practitioner, as we've discussed before in our earlier conversation. That is also very clearly, when I think about it, a Taoist process of discernment. It's rooted in the spiritual tradition. And, um, you know, there, there's an interesting relationship between Tai Chi and a meditative encounter with daily things. One of the first things you do as a Tai Chi practitioner is you learn how to walk again. They call it Tai Chi walking. And instead of just, uh, as my instructor described, falling forward and catching yourself, which is the normal process of walking in order to achieve a destination, you focus on the energetics of movement. You focus on what the Chinese call the Dantian, the center of energy or the center of mass and locating that in relationship to each stride. And therefore each stride becomes almost like a conscious meditative practice um, that takes you out of the idea of walking as destination or achieving a destination of some sort and puts you in the space of walking as practice, practice of balance. And of course you're doing the walking with hand gestures and the rest of the Tai Chi form. So the walking becomes the foundation for the complexity and the exactness of the entire movement, which becomes a form of spiritual practice, right? Distancing yourself from arbitrary movement and practicing controlled um, finite movement through regulated breath that produces this sense of clarity, right? Or altered perception. Mm -hmm. I would say too, literature in some ways. I, I chose to be a literature major because literature always helped me perceive differently. Um, I focused on poetry, and I know you've already done a video with Doug on how poetry specifically relates to perception. I have to say, I'm a huge fan of Doug's work. And the first time I read it, the thing I love about Doug's poetry is he moves seamlessly between this world and a world of the fantastic, or a world of the metaphorical, a world that starts to verge on the spiritual. And he does it with such ease that it's the habit of mind I think we're describing to move in between this world and other states of perception that feel somehow enlightened or clearer. So I always loved poetry as an undergrad because there are just fewer words. So you're not worried about a massive arc of plot or character development or other mechanisms where you're lost in time. You're, you're worried about the distillation of a single moment and what that moment helps convey about um, the potential in that moment, that series of events. I, I'm thinking specifically of one of my favorite poems is called The Moon Rising by Lorca. Mm -hmm. And it's just a poem about how moonlight changes perception. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, one of the final lines in the poem is that when the moon fills infinity, the silver coins sob in the pocket. And it's almost like something as mundane as a coin is transformed into something talismanic or magical when the moonlight shifts or when the moon rises. And I associate those sorts of states with states of discernment, states of transformation, alteration, elevation into some sort of greater consciousness. So that's achieved through all sorts of literary practice, literary study, Tai Chi practice, or just daily habits of mind that we seek to, to use to separate us from you know, the daily grind. No, absolutely. absolutely. Um, as you say, I think 
there can often be a sense, at least for me, of how important uh, those types of practices are in our daily grind, in our contemporary reality, which is one of often fast-paced uh, reality, of a lot of movement, of uh, sh short uh, images that are designed to capture our attention and not keep us in the moment, but rather constantly kind of propel us forward in all kinds of different uh, directions and how important it is as a, a fundamental principle of discernment to be able to be settled, to be in the moment such that you can notice things that often pass by unnoticed because they simply are mm. the breath, uh, the movement of the body, right? I love some of those examples that you were giving because I think that um, there can be a tension sometimes in, in, in discernment or uh, even an Ignatian discernment over time to sometimes have a, a, an overly intellectual uh, element to it. And certainly the imagination is, is very a key part of it uh, and part of the insight of St. Ignatius. But the physical too it was is a really important part, and often some of the less known uh, prayer methods that that he advocates for will be, for example, taking the Our Father and simply praying one word at a time, mm. as a way to get more centered. And his awareness, uh, he has rules uh, around uh, eating and mm. other kinds of uh, practice, those physical practices, right, that uh, relate to our actual embodied reality, because that's, that's such a key part, like you were talking about in terms of your practice of Tai Chi, um, to get us in awareness of all these other things that are happening. Because it's only when we're in that place that we can begin to notice slight nuances about how we feel or what we're aware of or what gives us light and energy and what doesn't just as you were talking about, right? This simple power of uh, literature or words to help us see things like a coin that's always around us, right? We can have so many layers of meaning yes. if we allow it to. I think you've said something clarifying too, that really in the end, it's about an immersion into this reality. I think that the way I was framing it felt more like escapist, which is often how I think of it for, mm. for whatever reason, that this world is somehow to be transcended um, or we are to distance ourselves from this reality to achieve some greater reality. But I think you're correct in the end that a lot of it does circle back to reintegration into this life or immersion back onto this plane of understanding with whatever acquired wisdom you have to make this journey easier mm -hmm. or more fruitful, more enlightened, whatever your goal is. I, I agree, and I, I think there's often a distinction that's existed uh, in, in many traditions, and certainly in the Christian tradition, uh, which might separate kind of the, the spiritual and the physical, mm -hmm. and imagine kind of a, a different purity to a, a spiritual that's disconnected from the physical. And I'd say one of the great insights that we, we've had in a lot of spirituality, and that Eastern traditions have had you know, throughout their history, um, is the value of the connection, right? Yeah. And even in, it's at the core of Christianity, even, because it's a faith that believes that God had an embodied reality. Yeah. So the two are intimately connected. And yet, uh, at times, the, that conflict has, has existed. 
Yes. What, what, what I think Ignatius knew uh, so intuitively is how you can find out uh, that depth. For me, it's often this depth yes. that, that the powerful stuff, that the next stage, that the, the deeper enlightenment is a result in some ways of the depth mm. um, of our experience, going mm. into layers that we didn't even realize were there. We talked about this contemplative inaction, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of the merging of these realities of physical action or action on this plane and the contemplation, whatever that's accessing, wherever that is derived from, that eventually those two things meet and there's a synergy between them. I'm a big fan of William Blake's theology for the same reason, that he saw himself in the wake of the French Revolution and all these radical changes in Western thought. He thought he saw himself recovering the body as sacred still thought of himself as a Christian, most certainly, but was trying to reframe the dualistic categories of Christianity in a way that redeemed everything and offered this, what he called this unified brotherhood of Eden, um, this collective um, joining of things which had been separate, you know, in, in Christian thought or in some strains of Christian thought at least. I was going to ask you, Bob, with respect to Ignatius and his place in history, do you consider Jesuit thought and the concept of discernment influenced by humanism and the empiricism of Ignatius's moment and that this influences how he understood prayer or the bodily relationship to spiritual life that you're describing? Well, I think that there's an element of um, I mean, Ignatius is part of the product of a, a mixture, I think, of both medieval and Renaissance um, traditions, both having their own kind of roots in a type of uh, humanism. And his, um, in terms of his empiricism, I haven't really thought about as much, but there is, I think, in his personality, a certain practicality that always predisposed him to have a very practical approach to life, right? So that as first, you know, somebody were kind of raised in the, in the courts and then kind of pursuing a night out life through military uh, arms uh, and then transitioning to um, kind of this life of pursuing a religious life for him, he's always very grounded in concrete imagination. Mm. So for him, and this is part of the really interesting thing, like when he, in the spiritual exercises, when he has you imagine yourself in a scene from the scriptures, he has you imagine the details of the scene mm. to really get into the concrete. Right. I suspect it's part, it's, it's partly the context in which he grew up. Um, and there's kind of a, a earthy reality to kind of that focus. Also his personality. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think more his intellectual influences were studying at Paris and being exposed then to some of the, you, you know, the, the relevant ideas of the day with an emphasis on this more practical kind of examination of knowledge and rather than just kind of a more traditional scholasticism.
Discernment to me also suggests a degree of agency in the individual that's engaged in prayerful reflection that I guess I don't normally associate with prayer that's about surrender or deference to um, the divine, that there's some sort of engagement that is suggested by discernment to me that, again, made me think that perhaps he was a man of his moment, right? A man of this, this rising sense of the self as autonomous, uh, as an agent of action change, or just as an agent of consciousness, which wasn't always the case in, say, like, the medieval world or medieval consciousness. Mm -hmm. No, it's a, it's a really good point. And I think it's a really, it's interesting that, you know, one of the texts that we have is the, uh, his autobiography, which was dictated towards the end of his life. Right. And, and how much it embodies, he, he speaks of himself in the third person as the pilgrim and through, through, through most of it. Um, but um, there was an awareness of a constructed sense of self there um also i think that th this is a little bit different but related to something else you said which was the um this idea of um prayer and surrender to god mm -hmm. is kind of a movement of surrender and it's it's not the same but there's elements of connection to the little that i know about certain uh eastern styles mm -hmm. which involve a lot of surrender right? It's a letting go, not of giving up your individuality in a sense, right? In, in the sense that you're still, let's say in Tai Chi, you're, you're, it's still you who's walking, right? But you're letting go of all these things that have been learned or all these other things that have accumulated so that you get to your deepest self, right? The core. Mm -hmm. For Ignatius, he believed that when you got to the core, that's where you find, would find how God was calling you. Mm. So it was through a process of surrender that you would find this sense of the deeper self. And in that, you would find an alignment between the, what you authentically desired and what God wanted for you. Interesting. When you invited me to this conversation, I did a few readings on yeah. discernment just to understand how it was framed in the Ignatian tradition. And um, you correct me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff, but there were terms like consolation and desolation. And in one of the articles I read, they suggested that the movement between states of consolation and desolation was something that was happening internally that would then be offered up through prayer to God. Like once the self had determined a course of action through a state of discernment, then that final um, outcome was offered up prayerfully for blessing or for consideration. And that just struck me as fascinating because it feels like you've got individual rational thought or decision-making that occurs through an agent. And then that agent offers up the outcome of the self to the divine. I just thought that was a fascinating way of thinking about the mm. prayerful act mm. rather than the intercession of God in the act itself. But again, maybe I'm not understanding the way in which consolation and desolation relate to the outcome or, or mm -hmm. God divine presence in that process. So I think that um, part of the great insight that we see in Ignatius is some of the ways that it connects or, or can be understood to the, to the modern mind related to kind of 
uh, some of our understandings of psychology today. So they're not the same, but some of his practices in terms of the ability to notice the interior movements and to make discernments about if something is leading you to the end which you're trying to accomplish. You know, it, it's not exactly cognitive behavioral, but there's elements of, of some of that. This might right. be categories we use today. Right. But what um, I think is really interesting about uh, Ignatius, the process of discernment. So one of the keys is what we were talking about at the beginning, that you have to get in a place where you have, you're centered, where you're attentive, where you can really notice those layers of meaning that are not accessible to you during the normal day to day, right? Because it's just too much else is happening. So you're not even gonna notice them. Then you need to notice what kind of positionality you are, are at relative to your state in life. For example, are you proceeding in kind of a good-to-good uh, -good situation where you're on a generally good process, or are you going kind of more good, to, you're like bad-to-bad, bad, and you're kind of going down? Because he'll say that the feelings mean different things depending on where you are at in the process of your life. Fast forward to one that, another piece that I love that relates a little bit to what you were sharing in terms of offering things up. After you've made a decision, one of the last things that Ignatius talks about is you make the decision, you're committed, then notice how you feel. Because often what you will notice once you've intellectually made a decision is you'll have either a sense of confirmation or a sense of unsettledness, mm. right? And you need to notice, is that sense of unsettledness because you've made the wrong decision or just because of the difficulties ahead. If it's because of the difficulties ahead, then you can offer that up and ask for God's help, right? Mm -hmm. Confirmation, then a much clearer kind of movement of, uh, and then you can offer praise to God. So it's a little convoluted in the abstract, but for example, that's, a, I think, one of these things I noted that to like you invite God in is a, is a, is a, a dialogue partner mm -hmm. throughout, constantly asking. So. Are, are those states of consolation and desolation essentially extensions of the Christian binary of, say, like light, dark, God, Satan, heaven, hell? And the fact that those terms aren't used struck me that states of consolation and desolation, as you said, are almost like cognitive behavioral terms that, again, feel rooted within a self more than they invoke these binaries that exist outside the self, right? Like states of the heavenly or states of the fallen feel like external states where states of consolation or desolation feel like internal states of the self that are then projected outward um, onto the universe or prayed, prayed about, reflected about. Um, I just find the use of vocabulary, I know it's semantic distinctions, but I think it's an interesting way of perceiving the self's relationship to the process of prayer and to these outcomes that to me is fundamentally different from just invoking the ancient binaries let's say like light dark good evil and hell etc well part of the main insights of ignatius in terms of his contribution to the understanding of christian discernment is the ways that he understood that things experienced as light might not always be from god mm. and they might be instead from the enemy of your evil spirit or, you know, or the evil one or however, you know, or Satan or however it's described, right? So careful attention, discernment in the Ignatian tradition means that it's not, as you're saying, about a simple binary of kind of light or shadow or in our own personal experiences, 
for example, a specific example, when he was in Manresa and going through kind of like his uh, spiritual uh, moments, he would often experience great pull uh, to, to prayer. And there was kind of an image of light that would just kind of uh, give him a sense of like real fulfillment and excitement. And it would lead him to just pray hours and hours and hours. He also experienced that later at times where he's like, at the time when he needed to study, he would experience these great lights, <laughs> these invitations to prayer, right? And it was only over time that he realized, wait a minute, these things are occurring at exactly the time that um, I need to do other things that I've committed to. And so although they appear externally as things of God, in fact, they're not. Mm, so, yeah. So anyway, I mean, there's these layers which um, I think are involved in this discernment process. Now, I'll turn us a little bit now to talk about scholarship, because I think that there's really some interesting um, potential parallels. Right. I won't, I won't uh, I'll, I'll say a few things from my perspective, and hopefully won't cloud, you know, kind of what you're going to say here. But um, if we think about scholarship as an extended uh, commitment to paying attention to nuances and yes. distinctions, Yes. Right. To carefully try to find the truth of complex realities. Mm -hmm. There's much that's similar to that process of discernment that I was just describing. I agree entirely. And I think the mechanisms are more traditionally intellectual, perhaps. Um, I'm thinking of like, regardless of the discipline you're working in, because your, your scholarly methodology changes by discipline. Um, you're still using degrees of rigor and logic pretty universally. And typically, if you're publishing, we're talking about exacting rhetoric. Um, research, I think, is a distancing mechanism, right? It, it takes the opinion and measures it against the total body of the known and against what other peers and colleagues are saying about the current state of knowledge. Um, those are distancing mechanisms because they slow process, they slow behavior. I loved my old English professor at University of Virginia, Peter Baker, because he was so careful about everything. And at the time I found it annoying. You know, I, I would offer up these translations of Beowulf and submit them and he'd make me go read scholarly pieces about variant translations. And I just found it, it just felt like such a burden at the time. And I realized what he was doing was slowing me down and checking my enthusiasm for what I perceived to be the correct translation of a passage and to measure it against all the possible known translations and then decide where I fit in this spectrum of potential meaning. So that was a process of distancing. It was a process of slowing my own intellectual habits and measuring them against a tradition which is centuries old. And I think that it's a bit like faith in that you feel like you belong to a larger body. You belong to a greater corpus of text on topic or a tradition that has been around for centuries and that, you know, provides some perspective on, on what you're doing, right? So it's, it's the same sort of distancing we're describing or atemporal relationship with, with content that we're describing in the discernment process. So I absolutely agree that scholarship is a habit of mind it's certainly a process of discernment. You mentioned too that 
um, when we were chatting before we, we rolled, this idea of solitude and scholarship, I think is a fascinating point that um, I often think in the context of like the Ignatian Scholars Program of scholarship as collaborative, scholarship as involving faculty advisor teams and that this is a leadership program because the students are effectively leading faculty advisors through their research process. But in the end, when you sit down to compose your paper, you are by yourself with your thoughts and a method of recording them. And that is also uh, a process of discernment, a process of separation, almost a meditative process where you consult your research, you consult your notes on meeting with faculty advisors. These are all things that measure what the self wants. And then you integrate all of those variables into the final outcome. Mm -hmm. So very similar. I agree. And it takes, I think, in the, in the context of like Ignatian discernment or Ignatian prayer, great discipline in the same way that scholarship does, right? Yeah. That it doesn't, writing an article, writing a research paper, um, it, it's not the product of simply, oh, I have a great idea and I'm just gonna jot it down, right? It, there's a method that involves a commitment over time and no matter how talented the writer, just kind of the reading and research needed to reflect on ideas, I think there's elements as well that relate to there's so there's the individual and the discipline required and then the support both from uh, other advisors or you know counselors and then the wider community so to take the Ignatian context when you go through the Ignatian spiritual exercises in their you would say their traditional 30-day form you'd be praying the person would be making a very serious commitment to praying every day multiple times for a period of 30 days in a way that's a very rigorous process so that they notice the fruits of their prayer they would also be meeting with a spiritual director once a day who would not be telling them uh, what they're experiencing but rather listening and reflecting back helping them discern in the same way that we need advisors and mentors who listen to our ideas and help guide us oh it sounds like this there's something really fruitful here or there things that we can't even hear ourselves when we're just thinking in our own mind right but we need to, to share an idea and then the wider world of scholarship you could say is a little bit like just kind of the wider world of a faith tradition there's certain things that over time, in the case of Christianity over centuries, have been determined as the parameters for what uh, is generally true or yeah. good, right? And so when you're beginning, it's not just like a blank slate. When you're, you're discerning what you're experiencing personally related to these outside parameters, right? A simple thing being like, is this what I feel I'm being drawn to something that fits within the larger parameters of the, of the tradition? So to scholarship, yeah. um, the same. Yes. You know, one of the challenges now, Bob, in, in teaching scholarship, at least in the AP courses, I've structured the class as a canonical survey, which is how those survey courses are generally structured as sort of progressions through history and the great masterworks sequentially across time. Um, I was educated at university in the 90s as a critical theorist, though. So we were using all these kind of postmodern methods of reading that really do separate us from tradition um, or challenge tradition, seek to upend tradition and completely reorient the way we understand works in context. And I think one of the great challenges I have now as a teacher is understanding what the greater context is and how to measure a text 
or commentary on text against known or perceived traditions. And what it's done is made me reorient the class into a class about modes of thought, as much as it is a class about, say, Beowulf the text. It's also about ways in which we can think about Beowulf, right? Like, should we be focusing on the racial identities of the Geats and the Danes and the tensions between these two nationalistic forces? Should we be focusing on how gender is represented through Grendel's mother or Welthal the queen and how female figures are uniquely rendered in the text? Um, should it be class distinctions? Should we be talking about dream states and psychological layers or deeper archetypal layers? There's not a, as clear a sense anymore what we're measuring the work against, and that presents its own challenges. And I think it's a unique moment for the training of discernment, not only to understand, say, Beowulf, the piece of literature, but the larger context that surround it as a way of framing what can and can't be said about it in a cultural moment. Mm -hmm. um, it's been a very enlightening journey with students. They really appreciate that meta level of conversation where we're talking not only about the text, but ways in which consciousness is formed through narrative and the ways in which these critical theory frameworks influence the way we perceive things. But it is increasingly challenging, I think, in the study of literature and has been for decades now to find a fixed touchstone against which to measure your perceptions of a text or reality. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. It's a much more difficult uh, thing than yes. now in, in, I'd say, pretty much almost all areas, certainly in the humanities, in terms of, you know, areas of knowledge and in theology as well. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Karl Rahner, the, the Jesuit uh, philosopher, theologian, uh, there's said at one point that, you know, the Christian of today will be a mystic or not a Christian at all. Right. Implying, I think, that need for a, a, an awareness beyond kind of just the traditional uh, belief statements that, you know, you used to be able to just accept or the, the, the guidelines that were there. Um, and it's challenging. Yes. It's both an opportunity because I think we've peeled away layers of meaning that weren't as easily accessible before yes. when there was that strong canon. Correct. But we're in the process of remaking those parameters. Yes. In the Ignatian tradition, I think we often, you're guided both by your own ability to discern the guidance of someone you trust and will help you through that process, uh, but it is one of challenge. Well, thank you so much, Tom. We're coming to the end of our time here, but I really, I really appreciate this conversation and feel uh, just you know, encouraged again in that idea of the value of the ways that, you know, um, all of us at Loyola, not, not just, you know, the relationship of teacher to student, but, but students learning more about themselves and teachers sharing and connecting across disciplines is all part of this process. And that scholarship and the, the, the way that you're offering it, both connected to uh, research, but also to service and leadership is, is, is a great asset and a wonderful thing in our school. Thank you so much.